My first guest is Sherry Huber. She is a teacher in the Zen tradition, which she has practiced for over 30 years. She is the founder of the Palo Alto Zen Center and the Zen Monastery Peace Center, both in California. She's an activist in global peace work and a member of the Social Venture Network, which combines social responsibility and spirituality and business practices. She's authored 19 books, including the Depression book. Nice to have you with us today, Sherry. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Sherry, I'm going to combine four things all into one, see if it makes sense. If it does, then address it, all right? Okay. When you look at today's headlines, and I just took three papers as examples, the Washington Post, the Boston Herald, New York Times, what you see is you see institutions that are not honoring the larger commitment to sustainability of all members of society. For example, our business community has been playing fast and loose with any rule where it can make money quickly and effortlessly, but also at great risk, but never to itself, but always to the investor who believes that their best interest is being taken care of. Not true. Just look at the subprime mortgage market. The second is the subprime mortgage market. I believe that if people cannot sustain something, they should think well about engaging it. Why? Because you're only going to end up disappointing yourself, and then you're going to get depressed because of it. Then once you're depressed, you're going to act out and sublimate, either through drinking, drugs, overeating, gambling, um, bad behavior. But then you're going to be given medication and a diagnosis that somehow your brain is imbalanced because of that. So by starting at the idea that somehow your brain is imbalanced and this is what you need, that's one level, or watching Oprah one of the other talk shows and seeing The Secret, which I'm appalled by that no one's figured that little game out, that somehow all I have to do is just focus with intent and collapse other uh, surrounding competing paradigms into one and, and I will be able to hold that energy and manifest it. Oh, if it were only that easy. But again, it's, it feeds into this current pop, pop phenomena of, of, of the instant guru. You know, the Reiki master, grand spiritual healer, the 12th, 12th step uh, uh, princess I met one the other night. And uh, this is just a, a dysfunctional lawyer who couldn't do anything else, but now she's got a whole cult following, but that's the way it works. And people go to her thinking they've been cured. They haven't. But it's another game that we play. But nobody goes back and just says, why are you depressed to begin with? Well, someone took away my house. Why do you own a house? Well, it's the American dream. I thought fulfillment was the American dream and your opportunity to provide yourself with a lifestyle that provides fulfillment for you or your loved ones. Well, but that house was important. But you had no job. You had no sustainable income. You had no, you had no backup plan. You had no savings in the bank. So if you missed a single payment, you were in trouble. Well, I know, but they gave me the money. The fact that they gave you the money didn't mean that it was right. You know, it meant that, that was they were giving you something because they want to make money from you. So just like they give a drug, kitty cocaine, to a kid that's normal, but the teacher says they're abnormal because they might be looking out a window or talking back or asking questions that are inappropriate, suddenly now the kid is on kitty cocaine and the parents feel relieved that their kid is now being, you know, adjusted biochemically because they couldn't do it um, they, they couldn't do it emotionally. But gee whiz, did you give the kid too much to do to begin with? They ever had a chance to be a kid? Do you even know your kid's middle name? 
Are you too busy with other projects? The multitasking supermom, superwoman syndrome. Why not have a super kid? Because you can't have a super life and a super mom and super dad without having a super kid. Well, how many kids are actually super kids? How about none? But let's make believe it's all possible. So we have institutions exploiting people, knowing that they're going to be put into a trap. And then when they are in that trap, then saying, gee whiz, why weren't we regulated? Or why do you give these people loans? They couldn't be in a position to pay it back. So it's giving someone the chance to fail and hence cause depression. Our government's looking at all this and saying, don't bother us with this. But we'll give you a, a subsidized Medicare program that when you do have to take a, a, a drug, we'll help be one of the co-payers of it. Oh, that's great. And then Michael Morgan runs out and does a film called Sicko. Yeah. And start at the beginning of that one that if we only had everyone covered by universal insurance, well, of course we should all have insurance. But does that mean anyone's going to care about their health in the beginning? And if they don't care about it now, what likelihood are they going to give any emphasis to preventing anything if they, have to, if they don't have to pay for it? Now they have to pay for it, and they still don't get the message. Hey, cause and effect, it does matter. So now I take a look at this, and I'm thinking, gee whiz, we've screwed up with foreign affairs. We've screwed up with domestic affairs. We're teaching kids how to be illiterate. We're racing to the bottom. We're excessively violent. We're extremely prejudiced. You can never get a politician with rare exception to be honest about anything. And our politicians are not the one to write the rules. All rules are written by special interest groups. That got to, that's got to be depressing just in and of itself. Most relationships are based upon finding someone to create security in your life. And when they can't create security for you, then you get depressed. Or if you found, found that after the sex there was no real security, then you get really depressed. And that's not only Paxil but also Prozac simultaneously. That's that double negative. And then one day you wake up and say, I don't even know who I am, where I'm at, or what I'm supposed to be doing in my life. But it sure doesn't feel right where I'm at now. I don't feel comfortable with my own skin. And yet, psychiatry comes along and says, it's not your fault you're stupid. It's not your fault you're insane. It's, it's in your hormones. It's in your, it's in your glands. It's in your genes. And we have the drug to help you. And then everybody gets on that, that bandwagon. And everybody's just dancing and marching and throwing packs on the air, and people are jumping and catching with a lizard tongue. My God, what kind of mess have we created for ourselves? The form is yours. <laughs> that that uh, that uh, pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, because I've written a book on depression, people automatically assume that I am uh, anti-medication. Uh, and I, I tell them that that is not true, that uh, I am supportive of anything that assists people uh, as they pay attention to how they got themselves into the state that they're in and figure out how they can take the steps to get out of it. And, uh, of course, I'm also often asked, because I wrote the same book in which I um, said that because I, I had depression before it had a label and before there was medication. Um, you know, I, I didn't have the options that people have today, and so I went through it with meditation. And they will say, you know, can, can a person really end depression with meditation? And I tell them yes. And then the next question that you have to ask yourself is, do you want to? Are you willing to? And the answer for almost everybody is, no, I'm not. I'd rather have the pill. Well, is it the pill they want, or is it to maintain their impressions that they want? Because if you take, if you take your way, you realize that when you start meditating and using other visualizations, you're automatically going to 
change some assumptions because you're changing your perception. Do people really believe that they want a different outcome but keep the same perception? That's not possible. One of my favorite uh, things that anybody ever said to me, I was uh, in a retreat and this guy said, well, I want to be enlightened. I just don't want to have to change in order to do it. Well, George Bush is a classic example of that, isn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Him and Alfred E. Newman. You know, we are so, it seems to me anyway, in our culture. Now, I I don't think our culture is actually terribly different from just humanity in general. It's just that everything is so visible with us. Um, But somehow we have decided, gotten the message, uh, that nothing in life should be difficult. You know, we should be able to be rich, we should be able to be famous, we should be able to be thin and young forever, uh, and it shouldn't take any effort on our part. And if anything requires effort on our part, then there's something wrong with us, and then we start looking, as we're trained to do, to the experts to tell us um, what we need from them in order to be all right. And for most people, most people, at least that I run into, are conditioned to believe that it's going to be medical. Um, and so, you know, if you're overweight, you need medication to help you lose it. If you, you know, if you don't have enough energy, you need medication to have more. If you have too much, you need medication to have less. Um, it's, just, it, it's a very hard sell uh, that that we are responsible for our own life experience, that we have the ability to understand ourselves, who we are, and what we need, and what's going to work for us, and what's going to make a difference better than anybody else. We're just not conditioned to that kind of sense of personal responsibility. We're, it's, at least it seems to me, with the people I work with, the conditioning is toward... Uh, inadequacy, the basic assumption, there's something wrong with me, and I really don't know what to do about it. I need somebody to help me. Okay, good enough. But that requires three uh, conjunctive understandings. One is that conditioning leads to stress. Two, that we are relegated to self-hate if we don't achieve what we are stressed about. And three, that uh, we cannot control the situations or even our thoughts related to depression. And finally, that we are living under the rubric of self-improvement comes from watching a television program or reading a book, but it doesn't look at the illusion of self-control. Your thoughts on that? Yes. Well, the, yes, the illusion of self-control. Um, I mean, just that, that little piece of information right there is transformative. Um, it is just such a basic assumption in most people's lives that you do have control, that you should have control, and that the fact that you don't have control is all the proof that you need that there's something wrong with you. So the difference between being able to uh, affect something and being able to control it, that's, that's a subtlety that I think most folks are not, are not actually looking at. Give us an example of that, please. Of the, of the lack of control? The, the no, fact no, the, the illusion. The Mo- illusion of control. Because almost all the self-empowerment books, including The Secret, uh, go upon uh, the idea that all we need is control of our oh, thoughts. Right. Uh, every motivational speaker, every, everybody who is uh, making a good living in that arena is saying, uh, yes, you can, it's up to you. 
Well, no, so it, but I disagree. I disagree with that. But I'd like to hear your point of view. Well, it's up to you. I'm going to tell you how to do it, mm-hmm. and then if you're not successful, well, that's your problem. The problem doesn't lie in the advice that I'm giving you. So the illusion of control is as simple as if you have a good life plan, if you have goals, if you have them written down, if you have your day planner, if it's all out there, then you're going to be in control of your life. And I encourage people to consider that you can have it in your day planner. That doesn't mean that you're not um, killed on your way to the airport to have that vacation that you've been planning for five years. So we can take personal responsibility. We can show up. We can do everything we can, but we don't have control over life. I mean, life is endlessly uh, proving that to us. We don't have control over just about anything. Anything. Uh, we just, the illusion is that we do. Yes. I mean, look yeah. at how many people woke up this morning and will have a stroke today. They have no control over having that stroke. Precisely. What they have done in their lifestyle cumulatively. But we don't look at cumulative input in our society. If we did, we wouldn't be in negative savings of 2% per average American. Right. right? <laughs> the, I want my freedom. Do you have any money? No, but I want my freedom. Do you have credit? I'll spend a lot of credit. Got a lot of credit. But I want. how can you have freedom to make any positive choice if you've already written away your freedom for something else you thought was more important in the moment you were in? And, of course, I, I, am, I, I bet we could sit here for a week and a half, and I would be in absolute total agreement with everything you say. I think that there is uh, very little chance that, that most people, whoever they are, are going to feel that they have the time, the strength, the energy, the resources, the willingness, the ability, the awareness and attention to make use of uh, any but a very, very small percentage of this because it seems to me, again, at least with the people who talk to me, that, that most people are in survival. I just have to get through today. How am I going to go to a job that I hate and interact with people that I don't like in ways that I don't want in order to get a paycheck so that I can put food on the table and keep the kids in school the kids who are driving me crazy, who are completely out of control, and I don't know what to do with them. And so the choice for an awful lot of people is just to have that drink, have that uh, uh, extra piece of cake, have go to the mall, buy that thing that promises just an instant of relief from the overwhelming stress and tension um, of their lives as they try to survive another day. The idea that what I'm doing might lead me to a stroke in 20 years, well, you know, I can't deal with that. I'm just trying to get through today. Mm-hmm. How do you then help people deal with what they can control and understand it's okay not to be in control of everything else? Well, my whole you know, be-all and end-all <laughs> is awareness, and so that's all that I attempt to offer to people who are interested. <laughs> and that's beginning to, to, to notice what goes on as a process, as a, a brainwashing loop of thoughts and beliefs and assumptions 
that they're living inside. And so to be able to step back, to find a little distance, and be able to see what it is that is controlling us before we recognize it for what it is, uh, is the first step, toward, to me, the first step toward addressing all of these issues. First, I have to know how this is being done to me before I have a chance uh, of bringing it to a stop. And when I start to see that those voices that are telling me what to do, the, the conversation that is causing me to make the decisions that I'm making, when I begin to see that that's conditioned, that it's programming, that it's not really me thinking those things, I'm listening to a conversation that goes on in my mind, then I, I start being able to have a little, a little bit of a chance uh, to stay at a distance enough to start realizing this isn't true. <laughs> I don't have to believe this. I, I could actually uh, see a possibility of making a different choice in my life. That's a very profound statement you just made. I respect that. That's a lot of help if people understood what you just said. So what you're saying is when a person is habituated to the conditioning that leads to the need to control situations, then the underlying stress of control to operate when confronted with an emergency situation, then you have to have some input. You have to have something there that will give you advice of what to deal with when you have any emergency. An emergency may be something insignificant, someone greater, someone else. And let me just two examples. We got into Iraq under all false premises. Okay, get us out. Now we can't get out because the stress of having any right. legal, economic, or even character challenges is so great that all they do is compound the problem. Instead of going to the mall, as you suggest, and buying something they don't need, having a big piece of chocolate cake, they will continue to throw another $1 trillion over the next five years into Iraq at the same time that we had a bridge collapse because we, uh, we have $200 billion necessary to repair all the major infrastructures in the United States, the 70,000 bridges that are in great need of that. We need an additional $30 billion to repair all the water structures, including New York City. It's 70 to 100 years old. But we have no money or inclination to do things that would actually fix something so that it's done. Instead, we continue to defend the ego. And when you invest in the ego to be right, you are on a race to the bottom. What you do not know is the consequences of how you're going to hit bottom. For Jeffrey Skilling, today he is sitting in a federal penitentiary because he was stupid. No. Uneducated? To the contrary. Harvard MBA. Because he was poor? No. He had over $100 million net when he was arrested in the Enron scandal because they made wrong choices at Enron instead of simply acknowledging we've made some mistakes, let's stop the mistakes now and apologize and try to make good. They compounded it by ultimately not defending the company, but defending their own ego and the responsibility for showing that the smart guys were wrong. And that's happening every day all over Wall Street. It's happening in Washington with legislators like Hillary Clinton and others who now try to skate and scoot and skirt the issue. And I'm just appalled by the fact that we allow our egos to have the power to, of choice that we do. Your, your final thoughts right. on all this. Well, and ego survival, I mean, what, what you're talking about is just, you know, taking it from the chocolate cake to um, uh, death and destruction in a place like Iraq. It's the exact same process, right? Yes, and the, it is. The, 
Yeah, and the, you know when we started out talking earlier about depression and that sort of thing and, and the, the stresses, all of the stresses in life, our society is now one where, the, where most people are sedentary. So we head out to work and we stop for our Starbucks where we get, you know, however many shots of uh, caffeine and some sugar to go with that. And then we go sit somewhere where we are not happy and oftentimes feel frightened and uh, ineffectual. And the stress in the body just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. And the way we've learned to deal with that is to shut down, to just clamp everything down so that we don't have to feel what's going on with us. And that, to me, is a great definition of depression. And how would you go about challenging that? What advice would you offer? Again, my whole thing is awareness. So uh, stopping. Uh, I actually encourage people to take a break from input for a while, turn off the television set, uh, stop reading the newspaper, stop reading the magazine just for a month, um, and stop taking in all of that uh, incredibly negative information that there's nothing that you can do about. Find something that you want to make a difference in and put your energy into that so that you don't feel like you're abandoning the world, but you're really accomplishing something other than uh, hatred of what other people are doing. Uh, You put all of your energy into that. You feel good about what you're doing. You train yourself to notice um, and to remark on and to appreciate yourself for what you're doing. You cut back on sugar. You cut back on caffeine. You start exercising. All that time you're not sitting in front of the television set, um, you go out and you take a walk. Um, Just those simple things to begin with. The meditation which I always encourage, I I encourage people to start with five minutes a day, just that. Turn off the radio in the car, learn to be with yourself, uh, find some silence and some space in your day so that some wisdom and clarity and kindness can find its way through to you. Let me add one thing onto that very practical but very beneficial advice. Stop personalizing everything. Mm Mm-hmm. Recently, someone came up to me in my office, one of our in-resident scholars, and this is a very wise woman, and she says, Gary, you realize that when you did your documentary on AIDS, I I said, well, I've done six, the latest being AIDS, Inc., which people can watch for free up on uh, Google. Uh, She says, yeah, but you've got a lot of people out there who are angry. I said, so the whole point of the exercise was to get people to think. And for some people, they first have to get angry because you're challenging a basic assumption that HIV causes AIDS, that AIDS is a terminal disease. And I said, and I challenged that, but I did so with science. I did so with reason and common sense and example. I said, now, I've done what I have to do. My ego is not attached to that project, any part of it. So people like it, they'll benefit from it. If they don't, they will attack it and in the process attack me. But, you know, you, you, could, you should answer all these. And I said, no, I don't intend to answer any of them. My answer to my critics was in doing the project to begin with. And therefore, my time is now focused upon our next project, which is Gulf War Sy- Syndrome, Killing Our Own, the new documentary. 
And again, I'll work for three months on that. I'll do all I humanly can do in three months to get the information out, do the documentary. It's out to get the uh, press releases out to let the public know that our Gulf War vets, 400,000 are sick, 32,000 have died from a condition that no one in the federal government's willing to acknowledge. And even when they had panels on it, they stacked the panels with their pro-industry people so nobody had to take responsibility. I told why, I told the motives, I showed the people, I had a hall of shame. And it's won 12 awards and big awards in the last three weeks alone. So if someone doesn't like it and someone attacks me, says, oh, this, that's their right to. I'm not personalizing it. I don't believe that someone's going to get up this morning saying, I'm, I'm so mad at Gary and all, I'm going to write him an email. Let him write. That's their right to write. That's their right to vent. But it's my right not to personalize it because that is diverting my energy. And all we are at the end of the day is either constructive or destructive positive or negative energy. And it works cumulatively. As long as I can continue to put my energy in a positive place cumulatively, good things can come from it. But if I put my energy in defending myself, then I'm really defending the ego. The egos need to be right. Well, I don't care what's right, you know, as far as ego. I look at what's right, not who's right. Who's right means you're defending an ideology. So I watch these talk shows, and all they do is defend their egos, defend their ideologies. What a waste of time. What a waste of energy. And then they get really angry, like Sean Hannity. You know, he had an interesting show last night where he talked about the hypocrisy of Michael Moore. There's a guy who just did a movie uh, on Michael Moore who grew up with Michael Moore, worked with Michael, and showed that, you know, he— you know, uh, he he's he's not the person he's saying. He's not the person. And if anybody saw his film, they'd have an altogether different impression on it. And 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 uh, Sean Hannity was going on about that, about you know, gee whiz. And then he had some people on about Leonardo DiCaprio's new film on the Eleventh Hour, which I'm going to see. I, I'm imagining it's a very powerful film. But he said, "Look, I will stop. Uh, I I will begin to believe more of what what these films are about when I see the people like." Leonardo DiCaprio not flying on a private jet, and which leaves a bigger environmental catastrophe footprints than all the people driving SUV, or one person driving an SUV in a year. Why can't these people change? And I'm thinking that's not the issue. The issue is not whether or not uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, who did this film, produced this film about the environment, whether he's flying in a personal jet. That's uh, that's for him to come to grips with and realize he doesn't need to. That's really ego, nothing more. I said, but it doesn't and should not in any way take away from the power of the message. Are we at the 11th hour with our environment? That's what's important. But uh, Hannity wakes up each day, I'm quite sure, with the idea that he's got to prove to the world that he is right. So he attacks liberals as if all liberals and Ann Coulter, Ann Coulter, Ann Coulter, my God, could you imagine she actually has the audacity and, and temerity to suggest that anyone who is liberal is godless? Well, then, then you define liberal, and it means progressive and humanistic. When that means, if you read the writings, if you're a literalist, that she would then have to say that Jesus is godless. <laughs> now, I realize that the Republicans would find that kind of challenging. <laughs> so let her fall in her own petard. I'm just amazed at how lacking in understanding people have about these issues. So let's stop personalizing everything. It's not about you. Trust me, at the end of the day, it's not about you. All right? Yeah, well, as, um, as a student of Zen, one of my, my the principles that, that guides me is this little saying, pay attention to everything, believe nothing, don't take any of it personally. Good and idea. The, the, the part about what you were saying that to me is so... Uh, powerful is 
that the amount of time that we waste in all of that ego maintenance is time that we can't spend making a contribution that could be helpful. So if you spend all of your time defending what you did last month, you're not getting done what you could be getting done this month. Absolutely. And, uh, and that's a loss. Anytime we have these uh, conversations that people have each day about their, their crying about what's going wrong in their life, that's a wasted story. A waste. All right. I yeah. just read a quote. I wish I could remember uh, who said it, but uh, it, it, he was saying about anger. He said, uh, every, every uh, moment that you spend being angry is 60 seconds. You don't have to be happy. I like that. That's nice. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, there it is. We can do, we can do only one thing at a time. Uh, all of this uh, multitasking aside, <laughs> well, well, we can actually only attend to one thing at a time. That's so correct. And multitasking, multitasking, you do none of it well. Exactly. So, so, so we have the opportunity to choose what we would like to attend to. We can attend to that. And um, I'm fond of pointing out to people that the quality of our lives is determined by the focus of our attention. So if we want... Uh, if we want our lives to be helpful or kind or compassionate, or then we need to turn our attention to that, not to what's wrong in the world and who's doing it wrong and um, criticize them. Another way of looking at it is every time someone calls, you just start the conversation. Is this a good or bad call? Mm-hmm. And if it's, you're going to lay something on me, uh, then I don't need the call. Right. And watch how few people call you then. Thank you very much, Sherry, for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.